Hello, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we have a very exciting episode, jam-packed full of all kinds of rock and gym and mineral and gold mining. We're going to talk about uh, sulfur of liver, which is used for metal work and so much more. I was looking at Radical Rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand and hills and rings. First thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock with no name, felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, you can find lots of rocks, cause radical rocks are everywhere. Yes, they are, radical rocks are everywhere and we're going to talk about radical rocks um, different states like Washington um, all around the world Australia we're going to talk about the largest amethyst ever recovered in 20 years is California ready for a new gold rush Um, picking gemstones some nice gemstones We're going to talk about liver of sulfur. This is something that uh, can be used for uh, working with metal smithing, uh, silver, and other things. We'll find out where it comes from, find out a lot about it. We're going to talk about the East Golden Mineral Property. Very interesting history there. Washington's potential new state dyno. Uh, We're going to talk about rock hounding in Oregon. Uh, Petowski Stones. And we will talk about Uperlite and so much more, guys. So let's get right into it, into today's exciting episode. Um, first of all, I'd like to talk about the, well, actually, kind of forgot. I want to thank you guys for checking out our social media. We are now on Locals.com, MeWe, Parlor, um, Facebook, YouTube, we have a couple of videos up on Rumble. We've got our blog, and of course, we have our podcast across all the different podcast uh, applications. So there's a lot of, uh, and YouTube, I think I said. So there's a lot of opportunities for you to get connected with our community and keep educated and share and take part in all this and see the cool findings that people have and projects and things like that and be part of the discussions on any one of these platforms that you prefer. All right? Okay, so into the East Golden Mineral Property. This is from our friends at the Gold Rush Expeditions. They send out emails. Of course, they're very uh, very good at uh, selling these uh, old gold mines that they find that uh, are not claimed or whatever. And um, this one happens to be in Nevada, in Nye County, in the Cloverdale Golden Mining District called the East Golden Mineral Property. Now, they are selling this, and uh, they're not sponsoring our show or anything, but there's just so much neat history that I wanted to share it with you. The East Golden Mineral Property consists of a single 20-acre load mining claim. This uh, property is located in the Cloverdale Mining District, the Golden Subdistrict, And it's named for the east and west golden mineral sites in the town of Golden that grew up and grew rather to support these sites. The town of Golden was a small mining town 
that serviced miners and ranchers from 1898 to about 1944. The town was leveled in 1966 due to a wildfire, and in 2008, um, or actually that, I guess it was leveled in, in 1966, and then a wildfire came along in 2008 and destroyed all the building, uh, but the foundations are probably still there. So the property has three audits with uh, rhyolite, country rock, they call it, and some of the areas uh, have not been backfilled, but it says uh, they're stable. There's a remnant of a small mill on the property. There is uh, a table mill, numbers of tailings that they feel consist of 360 tons, largely of quartz and little else. There's reports that uh, the mine was operating through the 1920s and uh, possibly around 1942. And there is a small mining community in the area. There's uh, evidence of a past mining community, stone cabins, storage buildings, and things like that. So pretty cool. Um, the property it has free gold in narrow veins which is nice. Um, you don't have to use a lot of chemicals to get that, so it could be a good mine for samples. The gold-bearing veins are exposed through a series of drifts and shafts. The assay value of the gold is uh, 1.14 of an ounce per ton. Pretty good value for a small undeveloped property that they claim it is. The East Golden Mine is north of Tonopah, Nevada. There's great Access, four-wheel drives, uh, they say, and it is on the U.S. Bureau of Land Management acreage. Uh, says the road's wide enough for vehicles, but would need work for bigger trucks, like dump trucks and stuff. And uh, they have more information if you want to check that out. You can just go check it out. Um, and they also, you can subscribe, if you go to their website, um, you can subscribe to their magazine, which is the Gold Rush Expedition's Mine, Miner's Review. And I've uh, shared some of the articles with you guys. Uh, they're very interesting. You just click the thing there, and they'll send the magazine to you. Sign it up. They, they'll mail it to your house. No charge. And the thing is beautifully produced, high-quality paper and pictures. So uh, I'm on their email list, and uh, they send this stuff to me, so I thought I would share that with you because it's just interesting. All right. Is California on the verge of a second gold rush? Eureka, right? Well, you know, California was really populated very rapidly because of the gold rush. Um, it used to be called the Golden State. I think now they call it the Sunshine State. But it was golden because of the gold and the sunshine. And Becky Robbins puts the article out for us at theatlantic.com. Is California at the verge of a second gold rush? As soon as you open the page, there's a, a core sample that's been cut in half. So it looks like a half circle. And it has green and white quartz. And you can see the gold, visible gold, right on top and on the side. This... Uh, section of, of uh, core sample contains chunks of gold. Really neat. Where area, what area is this? Well, it's Northern California in the town of Grass Valley. I've done dredging there back um, before 
um, the BLM decided nobody could dredge the rivers but them. So uh, you can go to the town of Grass Valley to this day. It's a wonderful place to visit. But this old mine here, the shaft goes some 3,400 feet in the earth, which is really not that deep. Um, I've been at a mine here in Idaho where I went down over a half mile into the earth, which is uh, about the five 6,000 foot level. So uh, they got a long way. And that mine actually goes down even deeper, almost a mile into the earth. So the remains of Grass Valley's Idaho, Maryland mine is what we're talking about here. There's a lot of mines there that uh, in the past made this area what it was. They fueled the economy, supplied all kinds of jobs. There's a lot of artifacts there. Like I said, this is a really neat town to visit. You go down Main Street, you're going to see old ore cars and rusty remnants and parking lots and storefronts all over town because this is, this is what this town was. But there's still gold in these veins. Um, and the Rise Gold Mining Corporation purchased this mine, the Idaho Maryland mine, in 2017. And they're the ones that are doing the core sample. And they said that the mine was shut down about 1956, not because gold was drying up, but because of policy. So a lot of times our politicians can destroy industry um, or or uh, can be, uh, you know, given a lot of money to their campaign so they'll support certain industries and crush the competitors. And we see that happen a lot where, uh, you know, one industry seems to have all the favoritism and all the power and all the legislative power. And next thing you know, um, you're pretty much mandated to use their products or you're pretty much forced into a corner to, um, to like, I'll, I'll use solar as an example. Um, if you live in the city and your your electric rate has gone up over 40% during um, not the last president, but the president before, he established this and really a lot of money, billions of dollars were invested into solar companies where the companies actually went broke and we didn't benefit at all. It was just a waste of our taxpayer dollars, but it did drive an industry and even more money was put into you get partial government funding to buy solar. So I call it solar welfare. Um, If you happen to be in a property where solar makes sense, then I could see how this would look very favorable and and a lot of people took advantage of it. I looked into it myself, but uh, it just didn't seem to be advantageous to me. It it didn't really pay off on, on where I was looking at it. But some people would spend uh, some of their own money. By the way, they put a lien on your property when you would get these loans, so you had to pay that off. That had to be insured to be paid off, um, or you couldn't even exchange the property or sell it, you know, to to someone else unless it was insured that property was, that uh, loan for the solar was going to be paid off. But what this did was it created a lot of businesses, a lot of air conditioning guys, a lot of roofer guys. They all started switching Um, their focus from their main trade and looking more at, uh, and also electric companies, electrical repairmen, to solar. And they would get a lot of money installing this. Um, It was a hot market. People needed to get it done. People would get these grants and uh, get, uh, you know, better rates for electricity and stuff. So that's one example of how, you know, economic policy can can push something in or out of... uh, 
of uh, favor, you know, in the market. But gold, um, a lot of people want gold. There's, it's gone up a lot since it was thirty-five dollars an ounce. So now it's much more profitable. Um, the the article goes on to say because of the economic uncertainty brought about by the pandemic, um, a lot of people are wanting to invest in stuff and they have this uh, helicopter money coming to them. So people are buying gold and stocks and things like that. And, um, you know, whether that's good or bad, that's a whole nother subject. But this is this is the problem about this mine. He, now they have this great gold. Um, I was going to read, there's roughly 63,000 tons of ground uh, and 206,000 tons um, that might have been mined that could be go through to look for more gold that's already in it. Um, so th the real concern here, so now I'm going to get real instead of, you know, a lot of people argue whether something's being manipulated by our policies, but the real problem here is a lot of mining, the rock that's pulled out of the ground can be toxic. That's just a fact. Um, heavy metals can poison our water supply. Up here in Idaho, they have a super fund because of all the lead that's been brought out of the ground. And now the lead has gotten into the top water. Um, so they're cleaning that up. So you've got to find a way to mitigate. You've got to check and test to see if that uh, the rock that you bring up from the mine, is that going to be bad? Is it going to leach some heavy metals or maybe even arsenic or something like that? So what they do is they take a, a, a pile of it and they take samples of it and they test it. And they have to leach it and see if any of the dangerous chemicals come out of it, how stable it is. So what they've come up with as a solution is what they call paste backfilling. So paste backfilling, a lot of these mines have already been in operation for a long time. Some of the tunnels are really unusable now or far away from where the main deposits are. So what they could do is they can take these wastes that they have from the new holes and they can um, mix them up with water and the mine waste and a binder like cement and fill the tunnels back up. And what that does is that actually makes the whole mine safer by improving the structural support and um, they could dig theoretically, um, a, you know, around it if it is solid and, and all that. So, of course, you know, there's always going to be people who are skeptical no matter what. But this could bring um, hundreds of jobs and indirectly hundreds and hundreds of jobs into an area that uh, could really use jobs and bring wealth to their community, to the state, and to the country. So, um, the article goes on to talk about the challenges and uh, the fears and those that are kind of against it, such as the Sierra Club and uh, other organizations are mentioned here in the article. So it's an interesting topic and something to think about, you know. What are the pros? What are the cons? And uh, I thought I would share that with you. Three massive amethyst clusters recovered from a historic Bolivia mine. If you go to mining.com... Um, you can see uh, Ramiro Rivero, the owner of the Anahai Mine, shows one of these giant clusters that was unearthed out of the ground. This is one of the biggest ones dug up in over 20 years at this historic Anahai Mine in eastern Bolivia near the border of Brazil. Huge amounts of amethyst and citrine and a mix 
stone called amethyst citrine, where it's both in one stone. Um, the name came from an indigenous uh, princess, the name of this mine, who discovered, uh, this was discovered in the 17th century, and uh, she was in this area here. Now, there's carbonic rocks that host this deposit. Uh, it's 500 mil meters thick and is with sequential limestones. The mineralization is characteristic by faulted and rotated blocks showing evidence of explosive fracturing followed by an initial rapid mineral penetration, which is known as hydrothermal breaka. So that is pretty cool. There was really some big things going on there. The, mineraliz the mineralization solutions of the mine are thick with silica and quartz that penetrated and uh, caused by this limestone breakation. Large sizes of the crystals suggest that the migration of these massive quantities of silica-rich solutions after the initial breakation. So in other words, the ground broke up, lots of cracks. That allowed a lot of the silica to leach into here to create these huge crystals. Um, these clusters weigh some 1,682 pounds. Another one weighs 1,600 pounds, and the smallest one of the three weighs 1,500 uh, pounds. Now, amethyst is getting to be a little bit more rare and expensive. Now, when you find amethyst crystals of this size, it becomes extremely rare. Um, these will be on display at the Pueblo Gym and Mineral Show in Tucson, Arizona. So if you want to see these, go check them down. Uh, check them out. Pretty cool. Um, looking at the pictures, these crystals, some of these are as big as a child's head that I see in the picture here. They are huge. Um, you could hold one in open hand, but it would be bigger than your hand. Um, quite impressive. Really like that. Now, which gemstones should you pick for your collection? Women's Fitness Magazine asked that question at womenfitnessmag.com. They have a picture here that I have on one of my blogs. Um, I don't know. I had a gentleman help me write one of my blogs, only one, and it looks like I had to completely rewrite a lot of it because it didn't make any sense. looks like they have borrowed the same picture. Um, but the first gemstone on this list is Larimar. This is the gentle stone, beautiful blue Larimar stone, loved for its original shape and color that uh, enhances the look for the wearer, they say. And since 1974, Larimar jewelry, jewelry has been well known among gem lo lovers because the blue color of the stone can stun anyone with its elegance. And, uh, you know, if you believe in the healing properties, they say it has all kinds of those. Um, I know when I hold stones, it makes me feel better. So uh, I love stones and they do make me feel good. So if I get cut with one, then I'm not feeling so good. Or if I smash my finger with one, I'm not feeling so good. So uh, stones do make me feel good or bad, <laughs> just depending. Opal, the stone with the ultimate glimmer. Yes, beautiful opal jewelry. One of the most adorned jewelry because of its kaleidoscope nature. Once opal stones are affixed to necklaces, pendants, or rings, they appear majestic, known for their pearly, waxy luster. 
and of course the beautiful iridescent colors that can refract within them because of the water crystals trapped in them are amazing. Moonstone, another kind of opal relative, the stone fulfilling every necessity, it says. Moonstone crystal is another semi-precious stone loved for its gracious appearance and touch. It can be filled with both delicate and bold designs. I've seen it in a blue hues, rainbow hues, yellow hues, which is quite popular because it is the moon color. It belongs to the Feldspar family, and the hardness ranges between 6 and 6.5. It can break pretty easily, though, because it is the... Um, the fracture will is uh, in lines, kind of. Moldavite, life-changing stone. Um, we've talked about Moldavite quite a bit. This is a tectite formed from, they say, an impact of a meteorite. And uh, people believe it has a lot of uh, spiritual properties. I have no comment on that no experience of that. It is a green beauty called the Stone of Transformation. Brings lots of positive changes to the person who wears it, claims the article. It's hard to find really pretty colors in it, but when you do, it can be very collectible and valuable. Uh, Libya Desert Glass, the stone with the desert's power. This is one I had not heard of. They said it's uh, from Meteorite Impacts. This is a glass the, on the deserts of Egypt. Now, I've heard of the glass, but I didn't know it was called uh, Libya Desert Glass. It's a yellowish-brown stone. Uh, looks real pretty when it's set to sterling silver jewelry and a very bold uh, gemstone. They talk about buying the stones, and uh, there's some videos here where people are trying to help you pick the gemstone at womensfitnessmag.com. Now, um, mining in the Boundary Water Wilderness from Mining. This article is at uh, sierraclub.org. The Biden administration moves to protect the Boundary Water Wilderness from mining. Since I'm in Idaho, I thought I would uh, mention this, but it's not Idaho. It's actually Minnesota. Um, these copper minerals and nickel minerals that were much wanted for uh, American America to have uh, some sort of stake in the new solar uh, battery slash revolution that's supposed to take place in our automotive industry here in a few years uh, and the minerals that we don't have. Connor uh, Mihil writes this article and um, I'm not going to read it, but basically they put a stop to this. Uh, it's kind of a bummer. I would like to see some of these minerals being developed at least a little bit and, uh, uh, you know, find solutions for cleaning it and doing it in a clean way. I would uh, prefer to see us have at least some of this minerals coming from our country instead of being totally dependent on foreign countries. So there's one article there. Too bad. There was a lot of businesses that were putting money into, uh, you know, um, developing this area and now they've just thrown their money in the garbage um, because it was approved actually under past administrations but uh, now it's just been reversed too bad um, malaysiadigest.com this is what i think is probably going to be the most one of the most interesting articles we've done um, in a while based on the fact that this 
Liver of sulfur is used for metalworking, and I've tried to include some metalworking from time to time. Not as much as I like, but I have done so more lately. I know you guys like the educational, informative stuff because the few people that reach out to us and email us, that's what they tell us. So a lot of questions need to be asked about this liver of sulfur. Um, there is an article that I'm going to be referring to, and it's uh, MalaysianDigest.com, and uh, I, Julie is the only one credited to it. But I want to give credit because uh, I do have other sources of information I can pull from on this, but I will be quoting a lot of from here. Some of the things you want to think about is, will liver of sulfur harm your gemstones? How long does liver of sulfur last? How do you use it? Um, what is it used for? Is it permanent? Um, what does it do to the silver? What metals does it work on? Should you pour it down the drain? Will it harm moonstone? Do you neutralize it? Can you use it on gold? Does liver of sulfur need to be neutralized? So a lot of good questions and answers. Will liver of sulfur harm gemstones? Well, it doesn't harm cubic zirconium or um, glass. So liver of sulfur can be can be safe to use on a gemstone that can be fired in place. Well, which ones are those? <laughs> Not a lot. If they have fractures, that can make the fracture worse. I would test a little bit on a part of the stone somewhere to make sure. Um, or just make sure you <clears throat> treat your silver before you set your stone. That's that's the other option. Um it says, don't allow it to contact turquoise, lapis, shells, pearls, or other soft stones as they can permanently stain. So there's a list of things you wouldn't want to do. And turquoise, um, yeah, I mean, it depends on what kind of turquoise I'm they're talking about. But I would think like calcites and stuff like that, you know, kind of porous stones would be at risk as well. How long does liver of sulfur uh, last? Well, there's two types. There's the liquid and um, there's the powder. So the, uh, the majority of it is LOS sold in chunks, which is mixed in water as you need to use it. And uh, it says you can use the LOS for one day to six months if you're lucky. So I guess once it's mixed, that's how long it lasts. How do you use liver of sulfur XL gel? Well, to make the darkest patina, it takes one teaspoon of XL gel, pour 12 ounces of heated water, about 140 degrees or 60 degrees Celsius. Make sure your ratio is correct um, for what you need. And if you brush the XL gel, um, it can be used as a ready-to-use product baking soda can neutralize liver of sulfur XL gel after it's used. So there's one to remember. What is it used for? Well, silver reacts to uh, to liver of sulfur chemically. It changes the color, it oxidizes it, and makes it turn black. So think of uh, really cool Native American jewelry where some of the the indented areas have this black 
that black gives it an antique look or a patina. Uh, it can look black and it can look a variety of colors. Silver tarnishes, but it accelerates it to this process. Is it permanent? Well, it's possible to create beautiful iridescent colors by adding a little ammonia. Be careful, I'm not advising you. I'm just telling you the information. Please do your research. Make sure it's ventilated. Ammonia can knock you out, okay? Um, so do all your research on how to do this safely. Um, but ammonia, a little bit of ammonia can be added to the sulfur solution and make these beautiful colors, but they're not permanent. It's inevitable that these colors will turn dark or gray over time. So that's kind of the bad news. What does liver of sulfur do to the silver? Again, it creates the patina. It accelerates its um, uh, tarnishing. It can be used on copper-bearing alloys such as brass, bronze, and copper. It becomes colored or darkened in the solution. What metals does liver of sulfur work on? Silver and copper are best. Um, silver with an e-coat, anti-tarnish treatment, or plating finish of fine silver, rhodium, or gold will not work. You can clean your metal by using pickle, which is a mix for cleaning. Um, you buy it to clean your silver. It's called pickle. You mix it and heat it in a little crock pot or sandpaper and then rinsing it. Can I pour liver of sulfur down the drain? Although liver of sulfur, potassium, uh, polysulfite can be hazardous in the dry form. Please read the warning label again. Um, don't, this is just information and go to the label first and foremost and follow those directions. This is not step-by-step -step instructions. This is just information. Um, this liver of sulfur when uh, can be quickly um, um, diluted, I guess. Um, it becomes inert when exposed Exposed to moisture or air, can it can be safely disposed of. After the pipes have been flushed, they should be flushed with water for several minutes, they say. Now, I don't know. I mean, you have to check on your municipality. Um, this article's out of Australia. I don't know what your municipality says, but uh, if it's dry, you could probably just bag it up and, and throw it away. It's just a product of, of liver, liver of sulfur. Um, will liver of sulfur harm moonstone as well as enhancing the color of semi-precious gemstones such as moonstone and labradorite? liver of sulfur can be used to enhance the metal itself so apparently there's a technique for using liver of sulfur with moonstones and labradorite, which are feldspar minerals you might want to do some research on this i am not up to par on how that is done so do your research if you decide to go that direction um, can, do you have to neutralize liver of sulfur? Freshly dipped pieces need to be neutralized before they can be used. Your item will need to be polished immediately. If you do not neutralize the metal, your liver will continue to react with the metal if you do not neutralize it. So you want to get the color that you want and then neutralize it. Can you use liver of sulfur on gold? Liver of sulfur is used to give metal an antique look or patina, which can be black or a variety of colors. Copper, bronze, sterling silver, metal clay, and brass and gold can be used after a little surface preparation. Again, does liver of sulfur need to be neutralized? Goes into it a little bit further. It says it is legal 
This is the article, not me. It is legal for sulfur to go down the drain in most areas as long as it's been neutralized first, as well as being an excellent garden fertilizer. Dilute sulfur liver is also a great source of sulfur. Commercial fertilizer products contain this compound, which is loved by plants. If the chemical is diluted first, it can be used. So I would say um, this is something uh, they mention you can use the... Um, Baking powder, right? Baking soda, baking powder. Let's see. Was up. We said it earlier. Let me review here. Um, but um, but um, um. Let's see. Where was it? Oh, here it is. I think. Um, make sure the solution ratio can be ready. Baking soda can neutralize liver of sulfur so there you go um they got some pictures and a video here somebody's making some coin jewelry they've given it that antique look pretty cool um, so there's a lot of different things you can do to make your jewelry look um, really cool so the show in tucson is on there is a youtube video um just look up um let's see if i can find who the who is the person um Michael's Noble Creations, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-N-O-E-L-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S, Michael's Noble, Michael Noel Creations, Michael Noel Creations, under the topic, Tucson welcomes back 22nd Street Mineral Fossil Gym and Jewelry Show. He's got a nice little video there on the Tucson show. You might want to check that out for 2022. Okay, um, we did have a story on a gold mining property. We talked about that, the East Golden Mine. Um, next, will Washington get its own dinosaur, state dinosaur? Olympic Washington lawmakers are in the thick of debating whether to designate a state dinosaur. They have found mastodons there, but uh, they claim this is not a true dinosaur. Um, shoot, I haven't seen any of them walking around, so to me it's extinct. It seems like it should count, but regardless, uh, at the My Call... I can't, uh, my, I can't, I'm trying to read the word within the website. It's uh, M-Y-C-L-A-L-L-A-M-County.com, Mycalama County, whatever that is. You can read by Pepper Fisher this article about this debate and the state dinosaur that they want to recognize that they located um, a few years back is a T-Rex. Yes. Um, this dinosaur is a spectacular animal that everybody is amazed with. I think uh, it would be a good idea for them. They have found a mastodon, um, but that is not a fossil. But they have found part of a T-Rex, the femur, belonging to a 35-foot-long T-Rex-like dinosaur named... Um, Sacosaurus rex, discovered in 2012 at Suka Island Park in the San Juan Islands there in the state of Washington in the United States of America. So they will be voting on this and hopefully they will have a new state dinosaur. That would be awesome. 
Now, Oregon, you know, right next to Washington, just south of it here in the United States, it is a rock-hounding paradise. All the best public sites are right here, according to Danielle Denham at thatorganlife.com. And you can look at her guide here. She writes about different types of rocks here and the structures and what you should bring and got a picture of a handy kit there and everything. And then she talks about some books and resources you might want to look at. And then she gets into the best locations for rock hounding in Oregon. But she says, look, no matter where you go, she knew a guy that found some amethyst in Oregon. So keep your eye out. You know, there's probably more out there. So the Ahi um, Canyonlands is a wonderful place. It's in Malheur County. And found there is beautiful agate. There's an extraordinary corner of southeast Oregon, um, nearly as large as Yellowstone. Flat desert spreads out into rocky crags with streams. Uh, there's Juniper Gulch, Sucker Creek Canyon, wonderful rock-hounding places to find pitcher jasper, thunder eggs, quartz, agate, petrified wood, and fossils. We've talked about the uh, Priday agate beds this is in Jefferson County. Richardson Rock Ranch used to be a wonderful spot to dig thunder eggs, but it uh, looks like they've closed to the public. You can still buy those from time to time at a gift shop nearby or maybe on um, uh, eBay. The Polka Dot Agate Mine is a public dig site at Canyon Rim where there's similar rock there that can be found. The Pride Day beds are well known in Central Oregon for producing some of the most stunning specimens of agatized and opalized thunder eggs. If you haven't seen that, um, you're missing a real treat. Some of the rocks you can find at the Pride Day agate beds and the polka dot agate, uh, plume agate, and thunder eggs are found. At Glass Butte in Lake County, you can find rainbow obsidian, very popular there, but lots of other obsidian, including black, pumpkin, mahogany, gold sheen, and double flow. Probably some silver sheen, too. If you have never seen the gold sheen or the silver sheen, you really need to take a look at obsidian because it's a treat. Um, the Nehelm River in Columbia County. This is one of the best places to find Carnelia agates. Carnelian agate is quite popular. People love this stone in the... Uh, the kind of the crystal uh, lovers, the people that like the metaphysicists, they love it. Its uh, color is yellow to orange and deep red, most desirable deep red. Orange is also quite popular. You can find this at the river near Timber Road, Clear Creek Road, and Banks Vernon State Trail, uh, or excuse me, Vernona State Trail. Very neat. Carnelia plum, uh, Carnelia agate, plume agate, and jasper. Then we move on to Lakeview area in Lake County. Uh, this is the seat of uh, Oregon. There's a lot of rock hounding there. You can go to the Hart Mountain National Wildlife Refuge and look at a dry seabed there. There's no water, um, but they said it's pretty. But nearby, there's Oregon State Gym, the Sunstones. This is at a BLM public collecting area. There's other rock-hounding sites in Lake County, including DeGarmo Canyon, the Warner Mountains, and uh, 
the very unhospitable sounding mountains called Arson Canyon. Be careful there. Don't lick your stones or you might drop dead. Lakeview, you can find the Oregon Sunstone, Agate, uh, Fire Opal, Obsidian, and Jasper. What a treasure trove. Opal Butte in Morrow Canyon, uh, Morrow County, rather, is part of the Blue Mountain Range in Northeast Oregon. And this has been known for a while. There is some private timber property, but there's a road up there that's open. Um, she notes to always pay attention to no trespassing signs. And there are rocks there, including fire, jelly, halite, rainbow, blue, dendric, organ jade, um, and petrified wood. So that's a lot of different types of opal. Fire opal, jelly opal, halite, rainbow, blue, and dendric. Wow, what a what a treasure trove. At Pesaga in Lane County, this is a great uh, hiking area near near Eugene, Oregon. Beautiful trails, some neat specimens that you can find there. Agates, calcite, uh, hewlandrite, jasper, malachite, mesolite, and quartz crystals. Wow, that's a pretty cool area. I've never heard of Hewlanderite. We'll have to check that out and find out what that is sometime. I have never heard of that. Very interesting quartz and jaspers near the rivers, streams, and banks. We also have the Mayuri Mountains in Crook County. I guess there used to be a lot of crooks there. Beautiful quartz with moss agate, um, limcast in Hampton Butte, Hampton Crook County, Oregon. You can see a picture of it um, if you go and look at the website that I told you about in the beginning. Lots of moss agate there found on the ground. Very easy to find, she says. Wow, that's rare. Um, White Rock Springs and White Fur Springs in Crook County. You can find these beautiful nodules. Um, the skins is kind of ugly, but the inside makes up for it. Uh, this is a beautiful area by Mill Creek Wilderness where digging is uh, prohibited. You don't want to do that, but there are public areas you can go to for thunder eggs and nodules at the White Fur Springs, White Rock and White Fur Springs. Make sure you're on the legal collecting areas, thunder eggs, jasper-filled thunder eggs, agate, chalcedony, and opal. The coast, you can go to different counties for that. The Catsup, uh, the Tillamook, and Lincoln and Coos. All are great places to collect along the oceans for picking up agates, fossils, look through the gravels, look for some that are prettier than others. Some are light, some are dark, some are variegated, um, some may be banded. You can find on these beaches agate, chalcedony, jasper, and fossilized sea, uh, seashells. She sells seashells by the seashore. Okay, rubber baby buggy bumpers. All right. <laughs> How to find Uperlites. Our friend Eric Rentamaki um, up there at the Great Lakes leads some wonderful trips on Uperlites. These are stones that glow under a ultraviolet light. They are beautiful. Rock and Jim sent me an article. You can look it up at Rock and Jim, the letter N in the middle, rockinjim.com backslash Uperlite, Y-O-O-P-E-R-L-I-T-E hyphen hunting hyphen part hyphen, and it looks like two small eyes and a backslash, or you can try to look it up another way, and you will see the article there where they talk about how to do this hunting for the Uperlite at night, 
with the light. I'm not going to go into that article a lot because you can go to the Uperlite site and Eric Rintemacki has lots of great information on that. I recommend going to him directly and or reading this Rock and Gym magazine. Patowski stones. What are Patowski stones? Well, they're actually a coral. If you go to our friends at Rock and Gym, they again emailed me this beautiful article. Uh, hyphens in between every word here. You go rockandgym.com backslash what are Patowski stones with a backslash at the end. You can pull up the article. What are they? They're coral and they're valuable. They are a beautiful, uh, soft, warm, brownish color with tans. Uh, they are hexagonal. They are very popular. They can be found on the lower peninsula shorelines of Na uh, Lake Huron in Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. Wow, the, the Great Lakes are amazing. It attracts a lot of people. If you look in the water, sometimes you will see this coral. Uh, the waves will usually wear it, will wear it smooth. It's a very attractive fossil. You cannot collect live coral. That is against the law uh, in America, in uh, a lot of other places, because you're killing a living creature. But this is fossilized, so you can uh, collect it. What corals make up this stone? It is one of nine species of hexagonal uh, fossilized corals. Only true Patowski stone uh, is this type made of marine organisms that are made up of many, sometimes thousands, of hard calcium carbonic uh, carbonate exoskeletons called coralites, which is coral. That coral is the outside skeleton of this living creature, coral. Um, beautiful, beautiful um, stone. you got to check it out. There's symbiotic uh, relationships with marine algae where coral naturally comes from. The hexagonal coral is a colony-type marine animal that lived in warm, shallow salt water and tropical seas. Once prehistoric Michigan was such an environment, and uh, this coral was growing there and can be found in large tracts of limestone bed where ancient remains of ancient coral reliefs, reefs filled the sea that is now Lake Michigan. Amazing, amazing. Finding these stones, you will look at the lake shores and rivers in the sediments commonly called the Traverse Group. Rounded fragments of the coral hexagonal can be found. Some reefs are still beneath the ground. Some are under the waters of Little Traverse Bay. So when the waves move, they polish these off and make them rounded and smooth. How did they get their name? It's an old Native American name um, that uh, was found out by an old uh, fur trader. And he met a, a, a princess, and he was actually adopted by the tribe and made a chief. Um, and that is how the name came about, is from that tribe, apparently. Okay. Um, there's more to the story if you want to find out about it. It is looking at becoming a state stone. Michigan is looking at, uh, oh, it was already made. It says becoming a state stone, but it says in the article that it became a state stone in 1965. So, wow, it's not only a stone, it's a fossil, so it could be both if they really wanted. Australia's Northern Territory, red earth paved with gold. Yes, Andrew Tunicliffe 
tells us at mining-technology.com that Australia's Northern Territory, Red Earth, uh, is paved with gold based on the gold that was in the minerals and paving that has been done all throughout Australia. Um, there's looking like there is uh, potential for gold mining in this area. I don't know what their economical uh, ecology views are on that, but this red dirt is full of non-ferrous metals such as zinc, copper, lead, and tungsten, battery materials, rare materials such as lithium, rare earths, and vandium, also other fertilizer commodities such as phosphate, potash, gold, and uranium, the Northern Territory government says. So they're looking into what they can do here. Um, they're looking at approximately 3 to $4 billion of output from the MacArthur River Mine um, that combined 2020-2021 made between 3 and $4 billion, according to the government. Um, there's also uranium there being rehabilitated. Uh, I guess they want to build some more nuclear bombs or make money selling that. A lot of stuff going on there. Read that article if you want. It's quite lengthy. It's also encouraging you to invest in this mine, which I do not recommend uh, you do or don't do because I am not a financial advisor. Next, we are getting to the end of our long episode here, and this page isn't coming up, so we're going to move on. My son sent me an article on Idaho sitting on one of the most important elements on Earth. Called at the article is at the Atlantic.com. Um, I found it quite interesting that there's a huge cobalt belt in Idaho, and um, it is the article's by Michael Holtz, and he goes on to talk about this. It's uh, somewhat near Boise, it's in South Idaho, um, near the Salmon uh, National Forest, apparently, a four hour drive from Boise to get there. But this area is just jam-packed full of cobalt, 34-mile-long geological formation of sedimentary rock that contains the largest known uh, pile of cobalt uh, around globally. So it's also lithium ion. Uh, it's needed for the global market of lithium ion batteries. They need cobalt to do this. So if you want to read more about that, it's very interesting. It looks like... Um, Big companies are getting the sweetheart deals of getting their foot in the door here. Kind of typical, unfortunately, but uh, you can read about the article more if you want. With that, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. And thank you for tuning in and ask you to support our social medias as much as you can. Until next time, remember, rock hounds don't die, they petrify.